Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Today, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Nolan Kagetsu, a neuroradiologist based at Mount Sinai West in New York City. Dr. Kagetsu completed his Diagnostic and Interventional Radiology Fellowship at NYU and has been a diagnostic neuroradiologist for the Mount Sinai West Department of Radiology. Dr. Kagetsu has been influential in the formation of the ACGME Diversity Task Force, where during his term on the task force, he helped influence the ACGME to create the position of Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Dr. Kagetsu holds several chair positions on diversity and inclusion committees across medicine and radiologic organizations and has extensively written about unconscious bias and microaggressions. Additionally, Dr. Kagetsu is the faculty co-advisor for the APAMSA, which stands for Asian Pacific American Medical Student Association at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Today, we're here talking about Asian American diversity within medicine, and we're so excited to have Dr. Kagetsu here to share his story and answer some of our questions. Thank you so much. Uh, happy happy to chat with you all. So Dr. Getsu, outside of your previous professional roles, would you be able to give us a little bit of your own introduction to our listeners? Uh, my introduction? No, that, that was a, a very generous uh, introduction. So uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I eventually uh, recently became a full professor because, as you may know, if you look at the uh, data, I believe from AAMC, Asian American AAPI folks are, in theory, over, well, we are overrepresented in medical school, and we are perhaps overrepresented in the rank of assistant professor, but as you go higher and higher, we become progressively underrepresented, and then there's even uh, data on the, the dean positions, and now at this point, they're more for example, African-American uh, folks in the dean positions than there are AAPI. So something's happening and uh, we'd like to somehow how change it. it. I guess it's on your generation. Yeah, Dr. Kigetsu, to start with, um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, what you into radiology as a specialty and um, would you like to tell students who might be interested in radiology as a specialty moving forward? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I'm always happy to plug plug my uh, field uh, in radiology. What we're trying to, I'm on a diversity committee. So what we're trying to do is get more women to consider it because as you know, women are a little over 50% of the students yet uh, radiology is only, radiology trainees is only like 27% of all trainees are women. So we're, we're trying to do what we can to uh, in, increase that uh, rapidly. Uh, if you, I can put, uh, do a reverse interview. If you, um, have you considered radiology in it? If not, why not? Yeah, I think it's definitely a very interesting field. I don't know too much about it, but I'll definitely be interested in looking more into it and learning more about it. I think one thing about medical school is we do get minimal exposure to chest x-rays and CTs and things like that, but I guess we don't get a ton of exposure to what the life of a radiologist is and both the lifestyle and the responsibilities of a radiologist, unless you seek it out. Yeah, no, I, I think that's part of the issue. Uh, many might, you know, at, even at Mount Sinai, you can not necessarily even rotate in radiology. You can just do some modules. 
which I, I think I encourage students to consider it, consider that. And our, my uh, uh, the cousin field at radiation oncology, which is probably even worse off. It's not necessarily for everyone, but it's sad when it would have been like a perfect fit, yet they don't even, folks don't even find out about the field until uh, much later. So yeah, radiation oncology, uh, radiology, and I have had people apply. I was a program director, and I've had people apply that you know realized very late in their in the cycle, and you know they even missed a year and had to apply a year later. And it, it's kind of sad when you know if they had had proper kind of timing, they they uh, could have saved a year. Um, I think some schools are actually incorporating radiology into their anatomy electives, so you you kind of see how the you know cool it is and and one of my uh colleagues at nyu he a former resident uh they don't even use cadavers for neuroanatomy because all the neuroanatomy is better displayed on on uh, imaging and and i kind of think some of the things you see for neuroanatomy in the books are almost like cartoons and it's mm -hmm. the difference between a cartoon and actually seeing something uh, almost in real life so I am a product of the COVID pandemic education. I'm a third year right now. So my first and second year preclinical was often all online because of COVID. And so neuroradiology and neuroanatomy is my worst topic because it's so hard to learn it off of like pictures of like a cartoon, like you said, like upside down Mickey Mouse or all these different acronyms and mnemonics that they use. And that's uh, probably been something that's haunting me and may haunt me in the future. <laughs> But anyways, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, so, I mean, I kind of, what whatever, was interested in medical school. Maybe it's because an uncle was kind of in the field. And I remember even specifically asking at medical school to to uh, do an elective in neuroradiology. So uh, somehow I, I was lucky and figured out what it was I wanted to do. And, and in, in some ways, I'm almost lucky that such a field exists that kind of I think matches matches my interests and talents and that sort of thing. Yeah, so Dr. Kigetsu, switching the gears a little bit. Um, so next we would like to ask you more about Asian American diversity, both like nationwide and within medicine. And um from like recent history, we've seen that Asian American hate has been juxtaposed with social unrest. So um that's commonly seen within the COVID. 19 pandemic and the the rise in Asian hate and Asian Americans being held as scapegoats. Um, terms like Chinese virus have been spread amounts like commonplace vernacular and it seems that Asian Americans are taking double the burden of both like the societal inequities and personal attacks. Why do you think it is that Asian Americans seems to t often take on the brunt of that discrimination and violence? It's a complicated uh, question, but you know, uh, I think uh, folks often um, find it easy to find a scapegoat, and uh, there's there's a, certainly a history of it. You know, I, I ask uh, uh, one of us, one of our, I even asked a colleague, who is Vincent Chin, right? And who is Vincent Chin? They didn't necessarily know. They had to look it up, and they're 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 uh, older than your generation, and so they had to kind of look it up and educate themselves. And just for the for this uh, group, my uh, executive summary is uh, Vincent Chin was in Detroit during the time where the the boogeyman, if you will, was Japanese car makers 
were being blamed for the uh, dire straits of the U.S. car industry. And so these unemployed uh, auto workers uh, took it upon themselves to, to uh, they got in with it with Vincent Chin, who was at a, a bachelor's party. And, uh, you know, they said things like, it's because of you mother effers that were out of work. And they actually were driving around uh, trying to find him outside this bar where they had an altercation and they uh, beat him to death with a baseball bat. And his, I think his last words were something, it's not fair, and which absolutely is not fair. And the residents working with me at the time said, that makes no sense. They were mad at the Japanese, but they killed the Chinese person. And I'm thinking, well, yep, that's the way these, they don't care. They, they figured close enough. Uh, so that was Vincent Chin. And so kind of fast forward, when I was a program director, you may have heard of the South Asian engineers who in Olaf, Olaf Kansas, I believe, uh, somebody said, oh, I'm going to shoot me some, I forgot which group he was targeting, but he got Indian uh, immigrant engineers and he killed one of them and, and uh, somebody tackled the guy and was shot himself. But, you know, again, they were targeting one group and they figured, oh, uh, Indian American is good enough. And at the time at Mount Sinai, I teamed up with a South Asian uh, program director and we, Mount Sinai made a statement about, you know, the kind of deploring this sort of violence. And, you know, we, and, and uh, at Mount Sinai, they we had a, uh, a student that was assaulted. Um, and, and in fact, I believe she was Thai, but you know, close enough. They, they uh, assaulted her, called her China virus and stole her phone. And, and so, you know, it, what do we do? Um, I think we have to show solidarity with other uh, minority groups. We have to, yeah, just show solidarity, whether whether it's uh, LGBTQ, the LMSA, SNMA, and stick stick with each other. Um, at Mount Sinai, it actually started an initiative where we were kind of reflecting on um, the advancement of uh, a the AAPI folks within Mount Sinai and, and perhaps going to audit and realize that we're probably in the same boat as other folks in the country where why aren't AAPI folks in leadership positions? Why aren't we? And actually, the founders of APAMSA kind of thought that, you know, why aren't uh, AAPI folks sometimes in the third and fourth years of medical school? Uh, why aren't they getting the perhaps the, the, the honors or whatever that they may deserve? And is it a cultural thing, whether we're not advancing our our uh, accomplishments or whatever. And it's kind of related to that book that Bamboo, I'm kind of digressing, but kind of like the book Bamboo Ceiling. Are you all familiar with that book? Yes. Yes, excellent. So I would say, you know, if you haven't read it, please read it. Um, full disclosure, I have met with uh, Jane Hume, the author, and I, I'm a big fan of, of her her book and what she's she does. Great recommendation. Um, I think one of the things that we wanted to talk about was that the historical context of Asian American hate, Asian American discrimination, and overall just the history of Asian Americans in general being in the United States um, is often not really taught 
I think it's something that you have to seemingly seek out if you are actually trying to learn about it and learn more about it. Vincent Chen, I remember, is a name that has come up a lot, but I think a lot of our generation don't really know the historical context of their own Asian American um, history within America. And I think that's even less so for people outside of the Asian American communities. So I think one of the questions that we wanted to ask was, why is it important that this diversity is promoted both within the general public and within medicine? Uh, right. No, I, I think it is important to uh, learn about the past. I mean, we don't have to kind of or separate and let it color every interaction, but just know that it is there and potentially, you know, every every as much as we want peace and love, it historically wasn't always there. Probably everyone, I would say, should know about uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, big ones, right? Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, Japanese internment, and, and just for the record, my my uh, family of parents and grandparents were interned in Canada. And people will often say, oh, I didn't know it happened in Canada. Yep, it happened in Canada. In, in Canada, they, they, uh, the Canadian government was less shy about actually confiscating property. So my, my grandfather was actually uh, a very wealthy uh, businessman and you know, essentially lost, everything was confiscated. And then in Canada, they were sent to these camps, but then they said, oh, after the war has ended, okay, we're going to disband the camps. You can go either to Japan or, you know, to a country my my uh, father at least had never been to, or you can go to to uh, east of the Rockies. And they weren't even allowed to try to find what was left of their homes. Um, I mean, they did have a, a summer home that somehow they managed to lose uh, uh, rights to. And or, and or whatever their 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 homes they they just lost uh, if they were reimbursed it was like pennies on the dollar and yeah it's important to to remember this history and then you know more recently with the in the U.S. the so-called travel ban uh, under the last president's administration uh, that that for many Japanese Americans that smelled a lot like internment. Um, because and uh, you know I, I was a program director at the time and I had two residents that were affected by the travel ban. One one uh, mother's uh, her her husband couldn't come back in the country because of the travel ban. Whether and then uh, another resident was concerned that he would not be able to renew his visa. He was in the country at the time of the ban, but he was worried that it wouldn't be he couldn't renew it and would not be able to take his board, you know, certifying board examination. Uh, I think we ultimately appealed to a senator's office that and and that got you know both of those things eventually got resolved, but it was unnecessary um, drama uh, for nothing, waste of everyone's time and energy. Right. Right. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your personal history with us. I think it's the more we talk about these things and just like look back into history, the more we can learn from that and also put some perspective onto the things that are happening now. And then um, I would just like to follow up on what you were alluding to earlier with the Vincent Chin um, accidents and also just like talking about the Asian American monolith and um, what impact that has like within medicine and the medical emissions process. 
um, our students, our PAMSA students at Mount Sinai made this nice kind of lecture on the so-called model minority myth. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it kind of relates to that whole uh, business about disaggregation of the data. And I think in a nutshell, some talking points, I believe when I last looked at some uh, data, uh, AAPI are like almost one third are limited English proficiency. So, you know, that's a big health equity issue, right? Uh, um, and, and a personal story to go along with that. So my grandmother had headache and was scheduled to go to, they presumably had an aneurysm, was scheduled to go to surgery. And somehow my grandfather got her some watermelon to eat. And, you know, they found out they postponed surgery because she was not NPO. And then she never made it to surgery. She re-bled, presumably re-bled. Who knows? It was some time ago. But, you know, I, I never really remember meeting. I was probably two-ish around the time. So I never really met my grandmother. And perhaps it was because of limited English proficiency communicating to them that it's really important not to eat. Right. So um, I, I'm a, a fan of, you know, people learning, being interpreters, but at least doing uh, interpretation. And so when I was a program director, I would encourage, uh, we, we had a, a trainee from Puerto Rico. And so he, his medical Spanish was off the wall. And so we made him an official, got whatever the Mount Sinai required at the time to be a medical interpreter. And I think that improves the care of uh, some of our non-English speaking uh, students. Yeah, whatever we can do to, to in in our little ways to uh, improve patient communication. I think at Loyola, some of my experiences is that I I've taken four years of Spanish, and even still, we really emphasize the need for using an official interpreter, even if you do use some Spanish or if you use some Chinese or some Vietnamese or whatever language you're trying to interpret with, because. Even if you have some basic proficiency, you are still doing a disservice to the patient if you're not using an official interpreter who is fluent in the language. Right. That that's absolutely an important point to emphasize. Don't go off. I didn't mean intend to just, you know, because you took took some Spanish in college, you should just go and try to interpret. That so what we had, despite him going to medical school in Puerto Rico. He, at the time, Mount Sinai said, you have to take this day-long thing. We have to certify you as a, give you our kind of stamp of approval. And so he had that stamp of approval, so he, he could do it. Now, you just have to check with your local hospital to see what they require for you to be the official interpreter. Because that's a big problem, because people rely, for example, on a family member. That's not good, right? Because the family member is not always, doesn't know the medical terms and, and that sort of thing. or or somebody that uh, just just somebody who kind of halfway speaks it, and you're going to do the patient a disservice. You have to uh, hopefully your your hospital has some sort of standard for this. And if you're doing in a kind of a very important thing like a consent for a procedure, you really should uh, follow your hospital's rules. Yeah, thank you for emphasizing that. Yeah, and I think kind of going back, one of the things that we've kind of touched on and talked about with the model uh, model minority myth and all of that, and Karen has brought about, is that a lot of times Asian Americans is is all coupled within Asian Americans. Like that term of Asian Americans couples a lot of different cultures, a lot of different perspectives, and a lot of different countries of origin: Japanese, Thai, Vietnamese, Chinese. They're all kind of put under the 
Chinese slash Asian American racial group or ethnic group. What effect does that have on Asian Americans that exist within America? And why do you think that that seems to be the default button that people press when they see someone of Asian American? Well, I mean, this is it's kind of a mixed uh, thing. For some purposes, people ask me, how do I self-identify, right? And at this point, for most purposes, I self-identify as Asian American because I'd rather kind of be a, a lumper than splitter in this in, in that area because we have to stick together, right? And, and if, if uh, some people say, oh, don't get at me, get mad at me, you should be mad at the Chinese, not the Japanese, right? Or you should be mad at the Japanese, not the Chinese. I, I would just say it's wrong to be mad at any specific group. And, and I think in, in some ways, I believe the history of the AAPI movement kind of stemmed from perhaps war protests and stuff like that. And then certainly um, Vincent Chin helped galvanize the, the group even more. So, you know, we, we realized that, you know, uh, for, for racist folks, it doesn't matter if you're one group or the other, we just get lumped together. And so I think in some ways it's better to stick together, but in some ways it is uh, good to recognize that, you know, there are, are subgroups that um, aren't perhaps uh, as a, a subgroup financially uh, disadvantaged and, and, uh, and uh, kind of the overall model minority myth perhaps does them a disservice. For example, in New York City, I believe, one quarter of AAPI folks in, within New York, New York Metro are below the poverty line. So there's a big income disparity, right? I mean, I've had kids that they, uh, they're in college and they said, oh, you're Asian, you're rich. That's not necessarily so, right? It's not necessarily so. And maybe there are some kind of uh, glaring uh, examples of people just you know showing off their wealth and they then they think, Oh, that's every, all Asians, but not necessarily. Well, definitely not. You know, you could argue a stereotype is almost a first approximation, but the first approximation—that—that's it. It's just a first approximation, and but you have to be open to it being widely different. I think that really resonated with me because um, I'm half Chinese, half Vietnamese, and my family, my Vietnamese side of my family, came over during the Vietnam War, and I think a lot of people, like you said. When I went to more impoverished communities to do some service throughout my training and during my undergraduate career, they've said, you know, Asian Americans are usually the bosses. And so sometimes when you're going and interacting with these communities, that's the vibe that they get from you. As an Asian American, you remind them of their boss because that seems to be the position that a lot of Asian Americans hold within that community. And so I felt like as an Asian American going into other communities and working with them and talking to them, a lot of other minority groups and impoverished individuals seem to see me as rich or all of these different, uh, maybe superior in some way, when you know my family came over on boats escaping a war and really didn't have very much for a really long time. And so I think that there is a, a little bit of, like you were saying, kind of a monolith type of sensation, which it seems like there's a, a, a generalization and a stereotype that's kind of put upon Asian Americans, for better or for worse in some cases, right, uh, depending on the context. 
Yeah, and next, I think we'll like to also address like the a, the racism that we see in academic medicine, especially as that pertains to Asian Americans. Um, so, Dr. Kigetsu, have you seen how um, institutions have taken direct actions to support AIP students or faculty? And what are some measures that you've seen to be particularly effective? Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm optimistic about the program Mount Sinai is starting. But I do think uh, institutions need to look at the, you know, per percent promotion of faculty to see why some groups are kind of not maintaining the, the, the average. And uh, I, I, do, I do think there is some uh, bias, uh, whether it's cultural or just AAPI folks, even in the, in the business world, are not seen as leadership material. There is another book uh, by somebody, uh, Margaret Chin, I believe, called Stuck. And they, they, people just don't, she, her thing is people just don't trust us for some reason. And, and, you know, how do you establish trust? Well, that's, that's a whole new thing. Maybe they don't trust us because of the way we look. I cringe every time they say Kagetsu and sneak in the same sentence because, you know, sneak attack Pearl Harbor, right? Is that, is that really what's going on, or, or am I being too sensitive? But Asians aren't are need to build better trust within their organizations to to uh, perhaps take the next level. And I know you know trust is one of the issues that you mentioned, but I wonder if there are other systemic challenges that Asian Americans face specifically. Sometimes culturally, and in, in like at the dinner table, right? You sometimes the children don't speak up and, and 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 it's kind of a cultural thing where you don't challenge the elder and and you know i knew i knew some people who would eat as fast as possible at the dinner table just so they would avoid the domineering uh, parent or whatever so i i think you know culturally sometimes uh what we in other cultures they encourage debate at the dinner table and that's Maybe over time we'll we'll uh, lose that uh, we'll, we'll have more uh, debate at the dinner table and and perhaps that might lead to more leadership. I don't know. Do you think that it's more of a cultural issue in which Asian Americans are not being promoted to those senior faculty positions? Kind of a clarification is: Do you feel that it's an individual basis that the individual? people from the Asian American cultures are not personality wise and interaction wise fit to be in leadership positions because of their culture? Or do you think it's more of a institution based level in which they're not giving the opportunities for these individuals to maybe take that next step? I think I think it's probably a little of both. You know, the I think I heard something, I was kind of reading something about the Harvard lawsuit and the AAPI students or the applicants were like getting lower personality scores, right? So what's up with that? It's almost like a confirmation bias. You, you probably all know confirmation bias. If you have a pre-existing uh, idea of what, you know, for example, Aaron is like, and then I, I talk to Aaron, I say, see, I was right. I'm so smart. And so if my pre-existing uh, kind of internal supposition is that, you know, uh, the, all these Asian dudes have no personality or whatever it is takes to even what, what the hell is even personality score? You know, there is some, some of us do fit a stereotype where 
you know, all we do is study, but some of us don't. And, but it's almost assumed that, you know, we're, we're a monolith and, and, and not leadership material. And therefore, and it's a self-propagating thing, right? If you, if you're never given any leadership roles, then you're never going to grow in the leadership space. Yeah, and I wonder if that also ties into some of the microaggression that they face on a like um day-to-day basis and how like microaggression is a term often scoffed as as being sensitive or just joking. Can you explain what microaggression are and why it's important to address them rather than simply taking them? So microaggression, first of all, we want to point out it was first uh termed by Chester Pierce, an African American one of the first African-American professors at Harvard or, or in Mass General or something like that. And basically he was contrasting a microaggression as opposed to a macroaggression, which would be say even violence, right? So these were kind of words that maybe not have had a physical effect, but uh, may, maybe uh, over time certainly could, could have a, a pretty dramatic effect. There's a nice little video, um, just Google microaggression mosquito bite some people say microaggressions are like mosquito blades as opposed to, say, a shark bite. Kind of annoying, but over time, it is kind of a good analogy because if you look at the world, how many people die of mosquito bites and how many die of shark bites? Actually, more die of mosquito bites, right? Even though it seems like, a, what, what's the big deal? Why are you worried? It, um, it has a, a cumulative effect and, in fact, can be fatal. So uh, microaggression, I think the one I wrote about is that somebody said Nolan Kayetsu is kowtowing to the status quo. And I'm like, really, dude, you had to go there. And for uh, in the Chinese culture, as you uh, may know, or some of my family members have experienced, is something you might do uh, at New Year's to show respect to your elders. You you actually literally kind of get on the floor and uh, and bow to your elders. And in Western culture, it's uh, kind of looked down on because we don't do that, right? Because we're we're Westerners and only those Asian people do stuff like that. Yeah, and so it, it's usually used in, in uh, Western uh, literature to almost insult insult people. Like a pres- U.S. president is kowtowing to the Chinese president, right? And that is, that's like supposed to be an insult. Microaggressions can be things like uh, at a panel, they'll introduce the male speakers by, say, Dr. Deng, and then, oh, Karen, right? And they can't refer to, even though you may have equal academic rank, they'll refer you to as Karen. That's a common microaggression against uh, women. I've actually uh, done the thing at, at a national meeting. I'll say the Dr. Yuan and, oh, Aaron. And just and I'll say to people, hey, did you notice what I just did? And you know, just to kind of make point that out. Well, part of the uh, microaggressions or stereotypes are are emphasized in in the uh, meet, uh, movies and media, right? And so the they have this kind of thing where AAPI women are quote docile, right? And and so docile is certainly not a leadership position. It, but the, and the counterpoint is the evil dragon lady, right? So it's nothing in between. You're e- either a evil dragon lady or, or you know. So at some point, when uh, doc, uh, student Dr. Yuan is a, a leader, right? Somebody will be like, ah, oh, dragon lady, right? And 
it's like okay here we go you're either you're either too quiet or you're you know you have to for women that's often the thing any any woman often is riding a fine line between what is the proper proper uh, action and more than more than men i have read that and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i have read that that when women are more confident they're described with words that describe more of a B word is what people will say. Rather than when men are confident, it seems like it's, oh, that's a leader. That's that's a determinated individual. And I feel like that is exacerbated by AAPI status and, and kind of the stereotypes around Asian American women as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. That I think they even had like videos of, of uh, men and women saying some, essentially the same words. But then people are asked to assess, you know, what do you think of the, and yeah, women are, you know, if they, even if they say the same words are like trashed for being uh, whatever. Yeah. The B word. Right. And how do you think um, female physicians or just physicians in general should respond to these microaggression? I know you wrote about the upstander approach, even though you're not the person receiving the microaggression uh, what can you do to sort of like stop it from perpetuating in the medical environment? Well, actually, it's an interesting thing. Mount Sinai actually had this kind of anonymous system to report mistreatment. And apparently they use the AAMC uh, criteria. And uh, if you're interested, I'll give my colleague a shout out, Michael Lightman. You just Google Lightman mistreatment and you'll, you'll probably find L-I-E-T-M-A-N and you'll find this article. And uh, it's interesting, they found that there was a small percentage of faculty that were responsible for the most reports. But what they say is, you know, if you just even have a small number that are uh, the bad actors, if you don't do anything about it, it's it really drags down the whole organization. So hopefully with that information, they can really improve the, the uh, overall culture. But I, I think, uh, so getting back to your question, if the more rank you have the more you're you're obligated to step in and and you know if i'm if i'm uh the attending and the patient says to like a woman oh you're hot it's up on them to really or you're the chief resident even says something like that then it's on them to really tell the patient you know that's not appropriate and you know explain and 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 stop them in their tracks and i i've heard of uh a house staff, African-American house staff being called the N-word and and tell the chief resident and they just kind of shrug. Well, that's not that's not good, right? The chief resident should say that's that's terrible and escalate it to whatever the hospital has a policy. I think I in some ways you should all be familiar with your your hospitals should have a so-called racist patient policy or equivalent that kind of shows you what you should do. I think a lot of medical students and pre-med students, since that seems to be the majority of our audience who listen to our Medicus podcast, a lot of them, including myself, have felt like we are at the bottom of that totem pole for so, so long. Right. And it's hard to imagine that we will be in, in positions of power in the future. But truthfully, as a third year myself kind of applying for residency, that soon, that time is is relatively soon, you know, coming into positions of power, like you said, chief resident or just as a resident, you have intrinsic power within the system that I think other people don't have. Right. The residents, residents have to stick up for the students. 
And then the other thing to me that is uh, hopefully most of the institutions have is do you have an ombuds office? So an ombuds is a person that, you know, something happens like that, you can go to their office and they're confidential and you can they can kind of guide you as to uh, what, what should happen next. ACGME even has a, a many, my GME office has a portal where, you know, people can report incidents and in, in confidence. And then if worse comes to worse for a, a resident, they even have an ACGME portal to want your voice heard. I mean, ACGME probably won't doesn't want to hear about every complaint in the country because they, they would be, uh, uh, but they, they would hopefully want people to have some sort of, uh, they really want to be the last resort, I think, in that in the instances. And kind of expanding on our role as medical students and physicians, something that you've written and discussed about is the difference between cultural competency and humility. I think these two concepts go hand in hand, but are different. And would you be able to expand on these concepts for our listeners who are in that process of working to be culturally aware clinicians in the future? Sure. You know, cultural competence was kind of initially the, the, um, our goal and, and it kind of, but it's kind of misleading because it kind of gives you a, uh, a feeling that, okay, I did the module, I'm competent. And then you kind of, you're one and done, you check the box. And humility is more something like, you know, I, I did the learning and now, now I'm, uh, you know, that's, that's cool. I did the learning, but I still have more to learn. And that's the humility part. And so I kind of like the term. It's uh, simple and it, it uh, admits that, uh, you know, I have more to learn. We all have more to learn. There's actually kind of a, uh, AAPI story I used to tell at uh, graduation. It, it was there's a story about a, a black belt, right? A black belt, and you know he's completed some of the the requirements, and then he goes up to the master or sensei or whatever, and the, he's asked what is what is the meaning of the black belt, and the student says something, oh, it's the highest achievement to recognize all my years of training, and the sensei says, hmm, that's nice. Uh, come back in one year, and we'll talk again and the the student realizes the right answer he says well it's just uh, one sign of my continuing work in in martial arts and uh it's it's a, a first step to a a life of of learning and and uh enlightenment or some, something like that right so he's kind of mending it's he he was initially culturally competent but now he's saying maybe he's more culturally cultural uh, humility I, I used to tell that at uh, resident graduation. So at graduation, you're, you're like, cool, I'm, I'm a radiologist. But then you kind of realize you're kind of beginning your journey of lifelong learning, right? And which residents probably don't necessarily want to hear that because they like to figure out, hooray, or even when you graduate from medical school, like, yes, I got master of the universe. But then you realize like, you're just, you may not have some of the trials and tribulations as a student, but you, you, you're still learning. Dr. Ketsu, let me look forward to my graduation and then we'll talk about residency when that comes later on. <laughs> There's enough learning to be done now. <laughs> right, yes. So one of the things that you, one of your roles is as a faculty advisor for PAMSA. Um, and there's an increasing number of Asian American students who I'm sure are looking for a place at their respective institutions. And for me, a PAMSA was often that space. So a challenge for the APAMS at our institution is that leadership often changes from year to year. Students who go into clinical rotations in the third year 
have a difficult time continuing traditions and events to the new students that take over the leadership, which are generally second year students. Um, this significant turnover and change kind of contributes to changes in a PAMS activity year to year. So for medical students listening to this episode who are currently involved with a PAMSA or starting a chapter at their own respective institution, what advice or maybe creative events do you have for students who've been that have been successful in your long experience as an advisor for a PAMSA at Mount Sinai? So that's a wonderful question and point. And we are just on a conference call today with some of our leadership. And I think certainly at Mount Sinai, probably like many other places, we could do a much better job of transferring, you could call it institutional learning, transferring it to the next generation. And for example, we want to host a regional conference. What should we do? Who do we talk to? Who? And then all these things, whether we, we have to come up with a better way, whether it's a Google Doc or minutes, or, or even we did host a regional meeting, what you should have a meeting afterwards and say, you can pat yourself on the back, but you can also say, if we had to do it next time, what what might you do differently? And, and then these notes or whatever should be passed on to the next uh, generation of leadership. And I would say, you know, work with a faculty advisor, engage the faculty advisor, and perhaps they have some way to help you or know somebody who knows somebody and that sort of thing. But yeah, that's a, a terrific point. And, and, uh, and then I, I would say, Right now, we have an M4 past president who is very interested in having, you know, they're very interested in helping the the uh, ones and twos uh, get off to a, a quicker start. Because, as as you allude to, the if they're in it for the first time, there's a, a learning curve, and you know they could be actually be doing events or just as opposed to learning how to do the events. Right. Yeah, Dr. Kigetsu, I'd just like to thank you so much for taking your time to speak to us today. And I think, do you have any um, recommendations for listeners or students who would like to find out more about the topics that we've covered today? Or ways to reach out to you about any questions? Um, I, I, one advice, I guess, is to uh, uh, consider social media. Uh, I am on Twitter. I think students have to be a little careful, but I think if you use common sense, it's, it's a good way to engage and, and uh, learn of other students and what they do. Uh, for me, uh, I was at a, a session at our national meeting, RSNA, and, uh, and there, are, there are a lot of positive stories. So consider social media. And then you could always, once you find uh, me on social, on Twitter, you can always direct message me. And, you know, I've even... People have direct messaged me and it's turned into a publication. Yeah, that's amazing. But once again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us about this important topic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, you can submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.